Welcome to Career Competitor, the show that seeks to light that competitive fire within you in order to jumpstart or optimize your career. While you're here, I appreciate, firstly, you choosing to listen to the show. But whatever podcasting platform that you're listening to is on, be sure to take a moment now and click a fifth star. Let's say if you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a follow if you're on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Make sure that you're giving us a follow and subscribing on any platform that you possibly can. Don't be afraid to share the show as well with any of your network. And at the same time, be sure to head to careercompetitor.com where you can learn more about what it is I offer as a performance and leadership coach and see how I can help either you or those that you are responsible for to work towards their optimal self and realize their potential through achieving optimal performance. Let's get to the show. Okay, well, my guest today is an Olympic gold medalist in the sport of kayaking from the Barcelona 92 Games, who has since gone on to holding positions such as the CEO for competitive paddle sports under the US Olympic Committee. He's been a color commentator for NBC at the Olympic Games, but most of his work today is centered around that of being a performance coach who collaborates with leaders and teams by getting them to perform at their best without compromising their lives. He also joins a select group as a returning guest to Career Competitor. And last time he brought so much fabulous content that I opted to turn it into a two-part episode. And today he's joining me to discuss his book, Slalom, which offers six river classes about how to confront obstacles, advance amid uncertainty, and bring focus to what matters most. I'm so excited to be introducing and welcoming back this competitor that I'm proud to very much call a friend at this point in that of Joe Jacoby. Joe, welcome to the show, brother. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be back. And actually, as you were talking, I think my favorite part about being back and speaking with you here is just, it reminds me how much our friendship has developed since the first conversation. And we've had a lot of conversations <laughs> offline and it's been so fun following each other's uh, path, including both of us writing books. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's great. And that's really what sticks out to me, really, when I think about that time from he there to here is our friendship, which is just, um, which is wonderful. And congratulations on the launch of Shock the World. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I think it's, it's why I had to mention it there in the introduction is it's been just so wonderful. Uh, and it's one of the beauties of, of this era that we live in uh in in life is that you and i have been able to build a friendship without ever actually being able to shake hands you know and then that's uh something that for me whether it's a a screen that separates us or an, or an ocean that separated us uh whatever it may be uh it's been wonderful just to truly build a a, a true connection uh with you now over almost what's been four years which is crazy well yeah that's I mean, I was just going to sort of put a pin in that, um, that little gap that we've crossed, you know, which is included um, this pandemic as mm -hmm. well. And so when you talk about the tools that make these, this possible and the, the adaptation of technology and um, virtual calls as really, I think, something that was a very unique glue that, you know, held the world together uh, for you know, for, for, for more than a year uh, during the, the pandemic. And I think even as I don't want to make any comments about where we are in the pandemic, I have no idea, but it does seem that what did start with the pandemic with technology 
is certainly a lot of the of that structure is staying in place in terms of the way we work, the way we talk, the way we collaborate, and even the way we work on ourselves as well. So yeah, it it absolutely interesting. Although I am, I think like a lot of us, me, you, you, a lot of us are excited about those opportunities uh, where we get to reconnect in person. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, you know, when, when that happens, not if it happens, but w- when that happens. 100%. And trust me, the, the, the lore of, of meeting you where in your homestead <laughs> is much greater than that of you coming to me. Because, uh, uh, and remind everybody where you're based. Yeah. So I am talking to you today from the city of La Seu de Gé in the Spanish state of Catalonia. Um, I live in a town of uh, 12,000 people. My house sits next to the 1992 Olympic whitewater canoe slalom venue where my canoe partner and I won a gold medal uh, at the 92 Olympic games, the first ever Olympic gold medal in whitewater canoe slalom for the United States. But, you know, my move here five years ago, actually my, my move here had nothing to do with, with canoeing or reliving um, a past um, memory uh, the move here, uh, now having been out of the U, I haven't been back to the United States in, in more than three years now. Uh, it was a quality of life uh, adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a way where I literally have to, the way I kind of survive here is I have to be in the learning mode every day. Like I'm, I live in a place where English is not spoken as the first language. It's I spoken very little bit. Spanish is spoken as the second language. We mostly speak Catalan mm-hmm. uh, here in this, in this part of, of Catalonia. And I just love that idea of learning new language, learning new culture, a, a new spirit, new way of the people, new nature. I live around the Pyrenees Mountains, and I think um, five years of kind of tromping around the the trails, uh, whether it's in my trail running shoes or on cross country skis, all of this is that this quality of learning at this stage of life has, has been amazing. So that's where I'm checking in from today is uh, my home in in La Seudergé. Yeah, well, between between where you live and your reasons for living there, and as you alluded to there with the pandemic, so much about what your book Slalom uh, alludes to is is that of really navigating some of these types of difficult scenarios that we are landed and the unpredictability, let's say, that comes with what is life. And you allude everything that you write about within the book all comes back to the river. And I would right. love for you just to explain to listeners your relationship because it is so unique so authentic so beautiful um that i would love for you just to give us that explanation here at the front of this so thank you it's a perfect setup so i am now about 45 ish years um into my participation in the sport of whitewater canoeing in some form i don't compete so much anymore a little bit but i don't compete so much but i think one of the things i figured out about canoeing when i first started paddling when i was uh, eight years old i was 10 when i started to like it uh was that i realized i was doing a sport that i could do for a long time it wasn't like a football where you know if you play in high school most people that's going to be the end of the line right there except for very few people so i knew i was doing a sport that i could do for life i think what I 
start was starting to understand and starting to put together, especially as I started to represent the U.S. national team and in international competition when I was uh, 16 years old, was that these these lessons that I was learning from the lessons I was learning from the river, um, you know who's in control, who's really in control, <laughs> which isn't me. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, the river is a, is a force of energy. It's a force of non never ending energy that is really strong. It doesn't ever stop. And um, I think thinking about that really sort of is, a, is, a, is humbling uh, because I think we're, we're told in so many ways that uh we are, we have all these things that we can control. And there, there's true. We have a response all the time when we're navigating the river. So over time, I think as life started to evolve as context, relationship, mistakes, mm -hmm. accidents, screw ups, uh, course corrections started to happen. Uh, then it really started to kind of uh, open up to me. Uh, this is much more than a sport, much more than an activity. The river has a voice. The river is is really talking to me. So I did author this book called Slalom, which transfers these 45 years of navigating rivers into the idea of navigating the river of life. But I think, I mean, it, it probably would have been the more gracious thing to do, literally to list the river as the co-author of the book. <laughs> I think a lot of this is just giving voice to what the river is is trying to communicate to us as we navigate this thing called life. Yeah, and, and that in that recognition though, in that recognition of the river and, and you using that parallel as well of life as a river, so much of what you're saying is actually, as you alluded to before, like yes, the river's in control, but that acknowledgement that the river's in control actually gives us the ability to have whatever control we can have within this life it gives us that sense of hey we can be a little bit more deliberate we can we can truly let's say define our intentions knowing that when we look at the big picture some of this is still out of our control there is going to be results here that hey when the results come for the most part we can be intentional for the most part we can be deliberate but there's still some of this that's very much out of control I, I'm, I think one of the things I was looking forward to doing about today was sort of kind of injecting a few shock the world isms <laughs> into our, the conversation about solemn. And uh, you have one section in your book called uh, shock the mindset. Mm -hmm. And I think I, you know, I was, I was reading that, that section and thinking that, um, you know, I think a lot of times, especially when we're younger, um, and, and for good reason, you know, we're sort of taught that, you know, hey, there's always like a better mindset to be moving towards. And, 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 and I don't disagree with that. I think one thing that I've, I'm thinking about more in the second half of, of, of life uh, is that as opposed to labeling like one is good and one is bad, I think the problem with labeling like I'm, I'm in a good place, I'm not in a good place is that if you find yourself, if you notice, if you find, if you summon that awareness and say, I, I'm not feeling my best, then you start to start, for, you force the issue and go, oh, if I don't move myself into this better place, I can't do well. I don't think that's true. I think that you probably could think of a, a number of stories in which you were coaching high performance swim athletes 
that when they kind of came to grips with the idea that maybe they weren't like mentally feeling their best, it didn't discount the amount of training and preparation that they had put into the race. And I think that source, that sense of acceptance in it. So the way I like to sort of talk about it, the way I talk about it in Solemn is that as opposed to labeling a mindset is good about or really being in control versus not being in control, mm. uh, just notice where you are and then make choices from there. And more than likely, this idea of control or not control is not going to last, is never going to last, you know, very long anyway. Uh, it's changing all the time. And so, yeah, I, I think that was something that's been very helpful to me, especially over the last couple of years is just, you know, if I'm not, I have a lot of days in which I'm feeling great. I'm feeling in the zone I'm in the river. We say I'm on the line, like I'm the boat's mm. really in the right place to right. kind of absorb a lot of energy from the river. But there are other times when I'm paddling rivers where the river is just having its way with me, <laughs> but that, that it's not, that's not a death sentence, you know, that's just sort of realizing like you're just restarting from where you are and you're making decisions and choices based on that. Mm -hmm. And that is still plenty good enough to not only just survive the rapid, but I've seen athletes win medals in international races with less than perfect mindsets, but it's more because they didn't fight the idea of not being in the right place, but sort of accepting where they were and then saying, okay, I'm going to make choices based on where I am. Yeah, that that for me is, um, it, it is a, and again, it, it's such a, it's, it's such an empowering feeling. It's, there's such a sense of empowerment when we can just sort of truly see an environment, a situation, a moment for exactly what it is. It's a moment for us to step into it and give ourselves to it and that's so much of what you talk about with the river for your 45 years of experience with it the more you can truly commit to it and give yourself and hand yourself over to it that connection and you know words such as uh, flow and, and synchronization that you talk about within the book you don't get to those moments unless there's a deliberate intent to say i'm giving myself over to this river and saying, I am now a part of you. I am now flowing with you. I am now hoping to be in as much synchronization with you as possible, but understanding that I may also not have control over that result too. And that, for, for me, I'd love to know more, Joe, about what does that heightened empowerment feel like to you over the years? Like you said it before, like you have those moments where you're on the line. That's great. Yeah. What 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 do those moments feel like? How can we as as people that maybe don't connect with the river the way you do, how can we maybe even sure. notice these sort of feelings in our day? Well, I think a lot I love what you just said. I love that that summary. And I think at the root of that summary is hum humility. <laughs> you know, is that that is the that giving in to a sort of a stronger power. But here's the thing about, you know, realizing that there are other energies, you know, at play. I think if I could ask everyone who's listening along today to sort of imagine the, the kayak and paddle metaphor is that um, every time that you go onto a river um, and you realize the river is this nonstop force of energy, Yes, as an athlete, you've done a lot of things to prepare your body to transmit power through the paddle and propel the boat in a, in a good line. But I think that there are sort of two fundamental choices that 
every paddler gets to make every time they they navigate a rapid. And there's the two relationships at play and, and the choice is which one to prioritize. One is the paddle's relationship with the water and one is the boat's relationship with the water. Mm. So we know that we're trying to work with the water because that's where the energy is. But the paddle is like the intuitive thing to do. Like your hands are gripping this thing. It feels like you're using your body a lot. But what's so what's counterintuitive about all this is realizing that a, a kayak paddle, which has two blades on the end, uh, on two ends of the shaft, only one of those blades can be in the water at a particular hmm. time. And second, the surface area of a paddle is super, super small. Whereas think about a kayak, the entire hull, the entire bottom of a kayak, that kayak is touching that same river current that the paddle is. So there's this boat relationship of the boat in the water. What I always tried to do or when I became old enough to sort of figure out, you know, to prioritize this, manage the relationship between the boat and the water first, <laughs> get as much energy from the river as you can onto the boat and let that be the dominating relationship. And then use the relationship of the paddle to complement that relationship with the boat and the water. And most people do it the other way around. And this is why we see people just uh, burning out and fatiguing so quickly versus um, having that counterintuitive presence, uh, not only to empower the boat water relationship, the people who paddle like this, this is how in our sport, and I've seen this actually happen in swimming as well, mm -hmm. where there are people who look like they're not working as hard, but they're more efficient with their, with their strokes that are actually swimming uh, faster than people who are moving their arms and legs faster through the water. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, there's sort of a, I, there was a, an Olympic swimmer from the University of Virginia many years ago named Jeff Rouse, who used to call this easy speed. Yeah, And he used to train for this idea called easy speed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's sort of the equivalent in paddling the water is like, you know, we're just being more aware in our life of where we can capture energy sources. That's not our own energy that we can tap into to help us give us propulsion and help us move. And I always say it's a lot easier to bleed off speed. We don't want than to try to pick up speed. We don't have. And the question is, is like, where do we pick up that speed? That's going to have a tremendous impact on how we manage energy, um, which I think really tap, you know, taps into uh, what you were just talking about a moment ago. Yeah. And the word you keep using here is energy. And so much, so much of that is a, is a choice in itself. Do we want to see and recognize and respect the energy that's out there? Or do we want to assume that we are the energy that it's all in our control to go back to that word control again and and something you're saying here too and you know you're right to make some of those connections between canoeing and uh, and swimming as well i used to talk to athletes all the time about how if they just focus more on their on their core on their body so much of what their arms and legs are doing will actually start to make more sense and and, and the the human tendency is for us to think well if our hands hit in the water first surely the hand should be the first thing that we're thinking about to to, to use your analogy of the paddle as well but I, I always like to frame it as response versus reaction and so much of what you're talking about in the book is that of our ability to respond to the river to, to and, and for me response says control 
in terms of just that ability to actually be conscious, to be cognizant, to be respectful. Reaction says, I'm just doing or flailing or, 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 or hoping, whatever it may be. And, and for me, those two words come through, to me at least as a reader of, of Slalom, in the sense of here is, here is Joe presenting throughout this book this notion that if we can really approach life as, as we should the river, then so much of what we do will be more responsive as opposed to reactionary, if that makes sense to you. Uh, absolutely. I, I think picking up on the role that energy play, plays into that choice, that ability to do that, is that I think energy is not what we're doing when we're in motion. Energy is really doing what we're when we're conserving, replenishing, resting, recovering, which can't, you know, in a sense can be done not only by sleep and taking rest and taking breaks, but it's also done between strokes. Like it's, mm. be, you know, I think the better that you recover and the more efficient that you are, my whole thing is like, it's not that I want people to be lazy in what, in what they're doing with their manager and with how they're managing their energy. I just want people to have the biggest bursts of energy that they need when they really need it and don't mm. waste it before that point. So if you're going to do that, then you have to be really mindful of what you're not doing and when you're not doing those things. Yeah. And I think that to me, and, and I think uh, and one example, if we sort of, translate some of what we're talking about here in swimming and paddling analogies to, to business. Mm. Um, every time I hear someone talking about time, I don't have enough time. Um, I'm always listening for then the idea is, is it really time or is it energy? Mm. You know, I think, um, uh, you know, people like Jim Lair who wrote the book, um, the power of full engagement, Jack, Dr. Jack Roppel, uh, who has uh, was recently just inducted into the U.S. Uh, Tennis Association Hall of Fame, has done some amazing work with uh, Jim Lair on this idea of energy management. But the whole thing was that they were focusing on rest and recovery and the little things that happen between spurts of energy so that when we really need it, we have that energy. We haven't wasted it on something stupid or dumb. Um, and so... That always becomes, I think, the, the thing I'm, I don't want to say I'm looking for, but maybe for lack of the better word, what I'm looking for, when I hear people talking about, I don't have time, or like a client says, I want to work on time management, I start to dig into um, where's the energy going? Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of what people like Jack Roppel and Jim Lair have been saying for years is that it's probably that you don't, it's probably not that you don't have the time to do what you want to do. It's more likely you don't have the energy to do what you want to do. And if we buy into that or at least explore that, we can pull that out usually a lot easier than we can pull out just more time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that you kind of transitioned this here quite naturally towards how this can be more uh, integrated in, into the business space. Because I think, you know, there's, there's absolutely... Not, there's not a single page in this book um, that cannot be impactful from a business standpoint as far as I'm concerned. Every single sure. page has that ability to, but what I do love, and we talked about this actually the last time we spoke, 
was that there's this there's, there seems to be a very deliberate shift within the book where we go from much more metaphorical you know outside of the box perspectives on the river and, and the lessons it can have and then you start to tell some real true life stories yeah. in the second half and you really start to get into the nitty-gritty in terms of hey these specific stories these specific moments in my life these are what really highlight specifically across the two chapters of that of course correction and the practice of transition and i would love for you just to i'd love for us to kind of shift the conversation here towards the notion of of how correction how transition are things that we need to be in many ways sensitive to just aware aware that listen these are things that are all around us i think sometimes we look at something like big corrections or especially the word transition people assume this has to be this all-encompassing like I'm about to move house or move cities or or move jobs or whatever it is but in so many ways what you're actually expressing here within the book when it comes to correction when it comes to transition these things are around us and they're around us quite consistently as well I I think looking for the ways to practice correcting mistakes and making transitions in the smallest ways I think that's the thing is that how we do them in the smallest ways that's the same muscle we use when we're under pressure and have to do them in the, on the biggest stages. And I think one of the things that really, I think, brought this home to me um, after the 1992 Olympics was um, ever since the day that we won those Olympic Games, which was 30 years ago, I've never said or have I felt that we were the biggest, the fastest, or the strongest boat in the race. The only thing that I think we did better than other boats and teams that we competed against was that we um we corrected mistakes a little bit more quickly uh a little bit more fluidly than our competition did and we anticipated mistakes before they happened uh and it's and you know that's one thing when you're talking about that idea of just a nice kind of sunday afternoon paddle down the river does so happen that we won our gold medal on a Sunday uh, <laughs> afternoon. But I think that the second part of that is that yeah, that actually, that strategy won the Olympic Games for us. Mm. And, um, and so it really can work that day. And I think it's, uh, it's not the sexiest way of talking about performance, but I think it, it's really underserved. And secondly, I think when it comes to practicing mistakes, I think we're... Um, you know, we don't like it. We'd, we'd much rather practice success than, than, than failure. And so one of the stories I tell in course correction is so the, is that um, in whitewater canoe slalom, you're in a canoe or kayak and you're navigating, not only are you navigating these difficult, challenging whitewater river rapids, but you're paddling in between sets of poles, a couple feet apart called gates. And you're, navigating these these gates on different parts of the river sequentially and it's uh it's a race of agility and adaptability and speed and precision and if you touch the poles with your boat body or paddle you get penalty seconds added to your time so the idea is to go as fast as you can between the poles without touching them or as the athletes like to say go fast and clean and so the story that i tell was that um in the late 1980s, my canoe partner and I went up to Connecticut to do a training camp with the top American doubles canoe in the country, our, our competition, but also our training partners. And we stayed at the friend of our, you know, at our friend, our competitor, our training partner's house. And all over his house, Steve, he hung these solemn poles all over the house 
so that if you wanted to go to the, the kitchen to get more food or you wanted to go use the bathroom or you walked to the bedroom, you were dodging these slalom poles. So like you were contorting your body trying to miss these poles. And what I realized that Lecky, this is my you know, training mm-hmm. partner's name, had been doing for all these years was putting mistakes, you know, potential mistakes in the most ordinary path of his life. And he was like really going to an extreme to do this. But it's like, I just looked around and I've always asked myself, who has the willingness to like practice mistakes to this degree and to go get more food, to go take a shower, to go to sleep at night, you know, to do anything in the house. Like you're dying, you know, it's like you're contorting your body in all these strange positions. So you don't, cause psychologically it, like it hurts to touch these poles. So sure. he was um, kind of building this kind of anti-relationship with the poles you know, where he could go close to them without touching them. That's the kind of practice that I'm talking about here. And it's like, then I'm just asked the question, like, how can people sort of anticipate, prepare for the things that can go wrong in their life? You know, the, um, it can be anything, something that goes wrong in a presentation, something that goes wrong within the team or someone falls ill or, um, you know, the unexpected calls. I don't think it's, you know, the mistake that happens. It's just how we respond to them and how we respond to them is just a function of how we practice them. 100%. And I'm so glad that we were organically able to get to this point of the conversation because, you know, I, I enjoyed, I think it's about 100 and, 106 page, uh, 90, 90, 98 to 106 pages your book is or something like that. And I enjoyed every single page uh, throughout it. Uh, but there was one thing that I made a note of before we started talking here. I was just like, there's no way we're getting out of this conversation without addressing this notion of designing an environment for higher possibilities for mistakes. Because for me, that's as a coach that spoke to me in so many ways as as a human being, as a man, as a husband, as a father, that spoke to me on levels that um, nothing else in the book did. And it doesn't in any way diminish the the rest of the book. It just heightens the the impact of that message. Because for me, and I'll probably reiterate it in closing as well when, when we're done with the interview. Because for me, I think the more we can live in that headspace of saying, listen, not only are mistakes okay, but because of, if we design the environment correctly for these higher possibilities for mistakes, it means that we're actually designing environments that there's more at, stake we're go we're going bigger we're looking beyond the maybe something that's an easy accomplishment or a comfortable opportunity we're saying hey this is going to be uncomfortable this is going to be difficult and because of that the opportunity for making mistakes is has to be heightened and that is okay i i gotta say i mean it's been the most responded to chapter of section of the six river classes that I talk about in the book, the, the, uh, the, the art of course correction. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just think so much of what we're talking about in the performance world today is what we do. And very often, you know, we talk much less about <laughs> how we fix things that go wrong, yeah. you know, yeah. because this is, again, it's just not very fun to talk about like when it doesn't work or when it's not going right. And I think that really there's a, there is an underlying theme of, of preparation um, 
in almost every part of paddling the river, but any part of performing well there in any sport in any activity in a business function, there's an element of preparation. And I think that if we're willing to really go deep in that level of preparation, then to kind of talk about um, mistakes that we're open to the idea of, uh, I, I would just much rather start conversations about this with clients before there's a need, you know, we, I, it's kind of what I, there's a chapter in the book called the, the anatomy of bold coaching. And I talk about this, this amazing, like kind of midway part of the Olympic race where the, our coach gives us this amazing, he makes this really bold decision, gives us this amazing pep talk before the, the second and final run of the Olympic games. But I backtrack that out to our relationship with this coach, which started before he was even a coach. Like, you know, this was when this coach was still training as an athlete and my first time attending a workout on the Potomac river, he was there. It goes to years earlier. And so the trust that it, it, it takes to really have, you know, to kind of inject something powerful or to talk about hard things like mistakes it comes from a point of preparation. It comes from a point of trust that you build with yourself, with your colleagues, with your team members. Uh, you know, this is also, I would put this in your book under the area of shock the community mm. is um, I, I, I can't think of a better way to shock the community than like, you're like, let's, you know, what does a fire drill look like? You know, right. uh, what does it look like when things, you know, go off track and how can we sort of, you know, become aware and not sugarcoat it, but really get into the, into the hard work of fixing it. And, and it's a lot easier to correct the mistake closer to when we go off track than it is. The further we get off track, the harder it is. And the harder, the more difficult it is to be successful as well. It's more difficult it is to win races and ultimately to have success in business. The longer you wait to, you know, to correct mistakes, I think it, it is, it's just, is such a huge skill and done consistently over time, whew, it, 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 it will do amazing things for your performance as an individual and as a team. Yeah, it, it, it starts to almost redefine uh, a, a person's instinct completely. You know, you, you start to seize the moment in terms of where's the mistake? Where's, the, where's this opportunity to learn? Where can I, what, what can I step into today to say, hey, I'm going to learn something that had I not learned this, it would have it would have come back around and hurt us at some point in the future. And I'd love that curiosity. Uh, and, and anyone that's listening to everything that we've discussed, Joe, you know, you have to be able to see this through the lens of a leader, through a competitor, you know, these are these are all these are all notions and approaches and perspectives that are going to truly impact any leader, any competitor, no matter what world that you're coming from. Um, as we talk about this and you know one word that you've used here today as well is that of humility and I, I think I think if you pick up this book slalom I think the one thing you have to do before you pick it up is say am I ready to truly be impacted in a way where I'm going to be forced to maybe see things through a lens that might make me a little bit uncomfortable and I, I think if you can pick up the book with that in mind you are going to squeeze so so much out of this book there's a, I, I appreciate that. There, there's a lot of nuance in there. I, I wanted to share with you one story that has come up for me since you and I last talked, not on the mm -hmm. podcast, but just our last conversation a few sure. weeks ago. Um, 
my friend Scott McGregor um, oversees the uh, Outlier Project, which is a, a a networking group of good people, and he he brings in guests on a regular basis that we get to speak with. And if, uh, a week before last, we spoke with Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok. Mm. And it was a small group of us talking. And, and I think he's 87 years old now. And his outlook, his story is so cool. We had a little overtime session after an hour long call with him where we were talking about what struck us most about listening to Joe Foster speak about his story at Reebok and over and over and over again, the idea of humility kind of came up and it was just very clear to us. This wasn't a guy who had success sold out and found a way to be humble. It was very clear was that he found that sense of humility so early on in his life. That is what made Reebok what it, what it is today. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of the call, there was someone that, um, one of the members of the group asked Joe Foster a question about, you know, she's sort of in the earlier, the lower levels of a company that has about 700 people. And she was interested, like, how can I help get my ideas up, you know, be heard more by upper leadership. And Joe actually said something really profound. And I think sort of embodies leadership and humility. He said, you know, at Reebok, the whole idea behind, um, you know, leadership we did we weren't advancing people because we thought they were good at developing ideas better than other people we advanced people uh at at reebok into higher positions because we thought they had better capacity to create channels to bring ideas up from the bottom Mm -hmm. so to bring up other people's ideas and there was something that was just so beautiful about the way he presented that idea and some it was very aspirational to listen to, but something that they clearly did at their organization that we often think that you know advancing in leadership is often about oh what can I do to improve to make the company better and how often do we think as in a in the sense of humility what are the channels that I'm doing to affect a lot more people that in, maybe not only directly report to me, but indirectly report to me, create better mechanisms for bringing ideas up from the people who are really fighting the fires inside these, the, these organizations. I, I, I just, I think this idea of humility and finding that place is, um, I, I hope it is something that we start to talk about more and ways to apply it. And I just got to say, I was so moved by listening to the founder of of Reebok and, you know, in the sense of humility in his story, it was, it was beautiful. Yeah, that is, it's so, it's so encouraging to hear it too. Cause that's someone who's doing it before a, a time long before today, you know, that's someone yeah. who's been doing it for a very long time. And uh, I think that's, like I said, uh, just so encouraging to hear that. And, and on the theme of humility, you've tried to incorporate my book from time to time and I'm not allowed you to do it uh (laughs) kept it about you kept it about you here uh within this chat and Joe I'm so glad that we have been able to do this and quite frankly every time you and I speak I don't know why I don't just press record and just keep releasing episode after episode (laughs) we could just have you know Steve and Joe grab a coffee maybe that's a a future podcast um but for anyone listening uh go to Amazon Slalom or just enter Joe's name into Slalom Joe Jacoby and you're gonna find uh the book there but Joe, honestly, as always, uh, just so appreciative of the time. Always learn something every time we speak, and I'm so excited that we can 
you know, share this platform and, and give you the opportunity to, to do the same with so many people listening as well. Thank you so much. And on our next conversation, you are free to hit record, but please know I'm going to be asking you a lot more questions about these amazing stories. <laughs> I have a lot of <laughs> questions about the stories I'm reading in your book right now uh, from the pool. And uh, oh my gosh, yeah, uh, I, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much. I value every time that we get to talk, my friend. Hey, don't go anywhere. I've got my final thoughts coming up from our guest today. So please take some time, give it a moment, take a drink. I got a couple more minutes I need to get out of you. Some final thoughts. Here we go. And my thanks again to my friend Joe Jacoby for joining us on the show today. Great to have him back after so long. And I know I mentioned it during the interview, but I do want to reemphasize the idea of truly creating an environment for higher probability for making mistakes. And what I love about this more than anything is it just means that we're aiming high. We're deciding to say, hey, listen, the goal is that big. The opportunity to succeed is that difficult that we have to embrace and immerse ourselves into some sort of process that truly is going to challenge us. And through those challenges are going to come some situations where we have to make mistakes because it's uncharted territory, because we're maybe taking something on for the first time. And that is okay. It's fine for us to be in a situation like that, especially when we know that the reason those potential mistakes are even coming our way, that are even a possibility, is because we're aiming high, because we're looking towards those crazy, remarkable, truly extraordinary achievements and saying, that's what I want, that's what I'm working to. So while there were so many pieces of insight here from Joe that you can be taking away, I hope you hear that one clearly, and more than anything, I hope you go away and get yourself a copy of Slalom because it truly is a beautifully written book, one that will provide a almost an update to your perspective. Wherever you are in life, an opportunity to maybe see things through a lens that you've not looked through up until this point. So I encourage you to grab a copy of Joe's book. I encourage you to certainly grab a copy of Shock the World that I recently released as well. And with all that reading you got going on and all this other stuff, that you've got going on within your world. I certainly wish you well and the best of luck towards anything and everything else that you're trying to reach optimal performance in at the moment. And I look forward to doing this all again with you very soon. Bye for now.